Welcome to the Sunday Tennis Q&A with high performance coach Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally respected author and educator and is regarded as one of the leading junior development coaches in the world. Join Chris weekly for the most intelligent tennis talk show on the planet as Chris answers questions from his audience around the world. And now, here's Chris. Hey, we're live. What's up, everyone? Sunday night Q&A with me, Chris Lewitt. How are you? I've got to go get my dog from outside. Sammy's here. He's in the backyard. Hold on. Hold on a second. Sammy! It's too cold out there. Get in here. It was a crazy day, guys. Long day. I've been teaching since the early morning dawn, like 7 o'clock this morning. So... I'm still going strong because I'm a grinder, I'm a fighter, and I train the Spanish way. I live the Spanish way. Suffering, hard work, discipline, patience, and consistency. And I believe in long rallies, training long rallies. We're going to talk about that tonight. Training long repetitions, grinding, consistency, suffering, all that stuff. Sammy, want to say hi? This is my co-host Sammy on the Sunday night program. He's doing his little dance. Hey, say hi. Say hi. Say hi. I don't know. He's a little pumped up tonight. Usually he's just kind of chilling, but tonight he's got like a lot of crazy energy. He's a little wild tonight. You okay? You need some water? That's you know, that's what it is. I think he's thirsty. I'm gonna get him some water. Guys, welcome to the show. It's my Sunday night live show every Sunday night, 9.45 p.m. Tonight I was a little late. I was working super late. I'm sorry about that. But I really appreciate, appreciate you guys tuning in and supporting the program. Hold on. I just got to get Sammy his water, and then we'll get all fired up. I've got some really good topics on the show tonight. I want to talk about Spanish training and why it's important to train long rallies, long sets, long repetitions to be a good clay court player. I would like to talk about the two-handed backhand and the technique of the two-handed backhand, a continuation of, of our discussion last week. I have some interesting additions to that discussion. And we have a number of other topics. I thought we might discuss the drop shot and why I think it's in some ways more important than the volley. And what else? Anything else that's on your mind, guys? We can talk about the first four shots myth, which I've been t talking about a lot on Facebook. I guess I'm, I'm riling some people up because I keep uh, talking about the fallacies that are inherent in, in using correlation, data correlation to support uh, new training paradigms. I think we are just way off. In, in, uh, in some of the recommendations that we're receiving, you know, some of the recommendations are just complete fallacies and specious arguments, but you know, we can talk about that. Uh, and anything else that's on your mind? I'd love to talk junior development, love to talk technique. You know, I'm a hardware coach. I'd be happy to discuss uh, the latest technical trends. I'm happy to discuss tactics. I like talking tactics. I had a good day on the courts this weekend. Sammy, anything you want to talk about? Let me get settled in here, guys. Oh, I should get my racket for you guys. I'm a little scrambled because I just got in off the courts. Sammy, get, no, Sammy, get back here. Get, get in there. No, you want to sleep there? You're going to rest there? All right, 
All right, okay. He wants to sleep on the couch here. Come on. Go. You're going to rest there, right? Yeah? yeah? He's doing his Sammy thing. Check it out. Can you guys see that? He's doing like some weird Sammy thing. Now he's doing some weird Sammy stuff. He's sleeping on the couch. All right, I'll wait for everyone to get checked in and logged on and ready to take off. Let me get my racket for you guys in case we have some technical questions with grips or anything like that. All right, let's see. How's everyone doing tonight? Anyone teaching a lot of hours this weekend? I was. Every weekend doing the grind. I had a great weekend of teaching, though. I was, I was uh, very happy on the court this weekend. It was, it was long and tough. I was tired, but had a lot of really productive lessons. I'm really proud of some of my students. Had a few, few boys had a really good results in tournaments this weekend, so I'm super pumped. I had a few boys break through and beat some top seeds at some local tournaments, so I'm really excited to see their progress. Very exciting for me. Some of the kids, you know, some of these players I work with for years, and I start them from scratch, and then they start de uh, developing as tournament players. It's very exciting to see the progress. All right, we have our first question on the board already. John Logan Minier is fired up, and he's my Facebook buddy. Sammy, you rest there. You go, you're going to go sleepy there? Yeah. He's so happy. He's so happy I let him on the couch. Sometimes I don't let him on the couch, but... All right, he says, let's see, first question of the night, right away, without any hesitation, John Logan Minier says, the importance of staying on the non-dominant side when hitting a two-handed backhand and your thoughts on bending the arms versus not bend the arms during the backswing. Okay, continuation of the two-handed backhand discussion. We had a great discussion last week, guys. I don't know if you caught the program or not, but we talked about a lot of the technique on the two-handed backhand. So the importance of staying on the non-dominant side when hitting a two-handed backhand. What does that mean, John, staying on the non-dominant side? Do you mean using the non-dominant side, like hitting with the non-dominant side? Uh, in terms of bending the arms versus keeping the arms straight, the arms should be bent. You know, you got to have bent arm preparation. Want me to show you what I mean? I'll show you what I mean. Uh, one second, one second, one second. Okay, 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 hold on. Let me get my racket for you guys. But can you just clarify what you mean, John, about staying on the non-dominant side? Because I don't really, I don't really know specifically what you're asking me there but let's talk about the bent arms versus the straight arms that's kind of simple and fun to do so hey guys there all right so we got the preparation the arms should not be straight guys straight arms equals stiff stiff stiffness reduces rpm and reduces racket speed. You know, you're not gonna get as much acceleration that way. So, the arm should be slightly bent. The racket head's usually kind of tilted up like that. Uh, the, the left elbow position should be away. So you don't want the hands tucked into the body. The hands should be away, and the elbow, you should be able to see the left elbow the non-dominant elbow outside 
the torso. That left elbow should not be jammed in. The hand should not be jammed in if you're trying to get that ATP, that ATP two-handed backhand style, you know, with with the, the, the lag and snap or whatever you want to call it. When you want you want to get that whip and maximum acceleration, the hand should be to the outside, but not straight. Okay? Outside, but not not stiff and straight. I hope that helps. Got a number of my buddies waving. Let's see who's joining the program and waving tonight. We got a lot of folks giving me a shout out. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you for waving. We got Moon, wait, a new viewer, Manjunath Ravi is waving. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Sorry for messing with your name there. Ronnie Mayaz is waving. Thank you for watching. Ronnie is a regular on the program. Mark Frampton is waving. Thank you, Mark, for tuning in. Mark is always giving me a shout-out every weekend. Appreciate that. Thanks for supporting the program. Juan Daniel Castillo Fajardo is watching. Thank you for waving. He's got a clay court in his thumbnail picture. I like that clay court. I'm digging that. I'm missing the red clay right now. Carlos Carrera is another regular. Thank you for waving. I appreciate the regular fans of the program. Thank you, guys. Angelica Morrow is watching. Also with the clay court thumbnail on her picture. Very cool. Red clay. I'm digging it. I am going to be going up to my club soon in Vermont. My dream place, my favorite place in the world, maybe aside from Barcelona. And I will be working on my clay court soon, my red clay court. So I'm kind of excited about the clay season coming up. Bill Patton is watching. Bill's a regular. He's always giving me a wave. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Henry So is watching and waving. Thank you, guys. Let's see if we have some additional questions on the board. I think John has a follow-up, so let's get into that. Thank you for everyone else if I didn't uh, mention your waves, but I see more and more people are logging in and signing on. I'm sorry that the show got started late tonight. I know it's important to be prompt, but I was teaching very late, and we just managed to get home in time to start the program. So I'm happy to be with you guys every Sunday night, 9.45 p.m. We have Intelligent Tennis Talk, Technique, Tactics, junior development, high performance, really any tennis topic that is interesting and sort of uh, burning in the, the public sphere, you know, sort of uh, in the, you know, whether it's on the internet or it's, uh, it's in the, the common debate, I like to get into the hot topics of, of tennis and the tennis industry. Michael Furman is waving. Thank you, Michael. Let's get to a few questions. Gordon Paul is a regular on the program. Thank you, Gordon, for supporting the show. Really, really appreciate you tuning in every night, every Sunday night. Okay, John says, I mean, is it better to keep the racket head on the non-dominant side or let it go past the center? Oh, okay, great. That, that makes total sense. Yeah, it does matter. The ATP backhand is typified by the racket being on the non-dominant side of the body. So I would definitely, you know, John's asking, should the racket be on the non-dominant side of the body during the backswing and the forward swing? 
And it, I think it should be. That should be the ultimate goal if we're trying to get that ATP style. And I don't mind using that, that lingo, the ATP style. I know some coaches are really offended when I use that term, but it's, it's crazy. It's a nice, simple term to use. The ATP style back end, I'll show you again real quick. But, okay, so yeah, the backswing should, should all be taking place in there. And there's like a little squiggle with the wrists, you know, uh, like a, whatever you want to call it, the circle with the wrists or the, the flip, you know, sometimes it's called the flip. So the flip's taking place to the outside on the, the non-dominant side of the, of the body. And yeah, what you see with the, the bigger loops, the, the bigger takebacks, you see that a lot in juniors especially young kids, very common in young kids, and I think that's okay, we can talk about that, you know, whether you should change that right away in young kids, or whether you should try to make it more ATP style on the non-dominant side right away. In my opinion, you don't have to panic. You can take your time with that and monitor the development of your player, and many times the, many times the backswing will sort of gravitate into the slot there on the non-dominant side without even without you having to ch really stress out about it as the kids grow older they grow stronger they hit puberty and a lot of times magically the backswing will kind of s fall into the place that you want so that's why when kids are young like 6 through 12 I don't think coaches need to stress too much about where that backswing is I don't mind the uh, bigger loop uh, type 2 or type 3 uh, I forget how Brian Gordon and Rick Macy classified. I think that's a type two or type three. Hey, Gordon, is the type three the big one or is type three the small one? I think type three, you know, is the biggest loop. Type two is the medium and type one is the compact one. Or did I get that mixed? Could someone just, uh, you know, fact check me there? But I believe that's the way, the way Rick and Brian break that down. But anyway, the, the bigger loops, I don't think you have to panic. And, and some coaches do, and they try to force the little kids into the small, compact swing. And I don't think that's always necessary. So I hope that helps. I think it does matter for the men. It probably matters for the women of the future. But a lot of women are making a lot of money on tour with type 2 and type 3 swings, if I didn't get those ter terms mixed up. So you can... If you have a female player and the, the loop is, is large, you know, it, it's another air, another time, it's another situation where you don't have to panic and force them into the mold of the men of the ATP style. But on the tour, you really don't see it very often with male players. They almost always have that compact swing, saves you time. It's easier to take the ball on the rise. And you can get the same amount of power with a smaller backswing. I think it's just better, you know, for those reasons. You know, it's better biomechanically. If you can think of some of the best backhands in the world, they all have that compact swing and the racket head is on the non-dominant side. For men, for women, it's different. For women, they often have a type 2 or a type 3 style. You know, it's a little bigger. I'm going to call it a type 3. You know, and I'll call the type 1 the, the most compact version. Right, and type two is a medium size loop, and a type three is the big one, like a big, big bubble loop. 
they can all work, but they're going to affect maybe your court position and um, you know, the time it takes you to, uh, you know, to take the ball on the rise. Hard to take the ball on the rise if you have a big loop. That's sort of the bottom line. All right, so I was going to talk about Spanish tennis. If you guys have any more uh, questions on the two-handed backhand, let me know. Oh, since we're talking about two-handed backhand, maybe we should just sort of roll with that topic for a little bit. I have this idea of symmetry, and symmetry for me is, is when you look at a player on the court moving left and right, that they have symmetrical movement patterns and symmetrical loading, so they're loading off the outside leg with both sides. That would be an open stance forehand and backhand. And I have this idea that, that really we should be striving for symmetry in the game, and I wondered what you guys think about that. But when I see, maybe I'm crazy, but when I see players who are setting up closed, like uh, one-handed backhands are usually closed, a lot of two-handers are very closed with the stance, and when I see that, it just, it just doesn't look efficient to me. The, the movement pattern is not very efficient. And I'm thinking that we should probably, as, as the game progresses into the future, we should, we should be teaching more symmetrical stances and symmetrical stroke production. And the highest, you know, the, the paragon of that, the highest ideal of that is what? Is two forehands. You know, and I've, I've always said that I think in the future we may see the elimination of the backhand altogether. I certainly think the one-handed backhand is, I, I can't believe it's still around, guys. I can't believe the one-handed backhand is still going. The way it's set up with the stance and the way it puts more load on the shoulder, you know, everything, the, the shoulder's taking so much load. I'm really shocked that, that players are still using a one-hander. I'm, I'm wondering in 50 years, you know, if you look back 50 years, what did, what did the game look like? You go back to the 1960s, 1970s, you had very few two-handers and you had a lot of one-handers. And I'm wondering if that whole ratio is going to flip in the future where we have really almost the extinction of the one-hander. We're not quite there yet because we still have some great players with the one-handed backhand. And we do have a few next-gen players coming up with the one-handed backhand. But percentage-wise, it's they're, it's pretty small percentage of the professional players that play with one. On the women's side, it's extremely rare to see a one-handed backhand. And I think what, we, what we're going to see is obviously the two-handers here, and we'll, we'll see more of that. But we may see more double hands on both sides and more forehands on both sides. That's sort of what I predict. And to me, that's the highest ideal of symmetry in the game. You have... Uh, symmetrical uh, forehands, lefty and righty forehand, which requires some ambidexterity, and symmetrical footwork in terms of... I don't know what Sammy's doing over there. He's wild tonight. He's wild tonight, guys. Normally he's napping right now. Sammy is all over the place. Go to sleep, Sammy. Go to sleep. No, sleepy night-night. It's night-night. All right. Anyway... So the idea is the symmetry of both sides. Let me show you what that looks like real quick. So kind of like you got, you got this side and then there'll be a, like a way to switch and then you have this side and it'll look the same on both sides, like the mirror image. 
And the same with the footwork. I can't really show you the footwork from this angle, but you basically have the semi-open with an explosion and the semi-open stance with an explosion off both sides. And there's just got to be a way to hold the racket in the middle. I call it the preacher grip. I've talked to you guys about this in, in the past. You've got the preacher grip in the middle, and you're going there, and you got to make a switch with the grip, and there, and it's going to be a complete mirror image on both sides. And what you get is the best possible court coverage. You get the best possible uh, balance in the body. You know, in tennis, is, we always talk about how tennis is so abusive to the body it's so damaging to the body because it's not it is not balanced you develop a lot of imbalances and i think that if we can teach symmetry if we can teach symmetrical movements of the body we can try to regain or we can try to regain some of the 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 balance that that we've that we've lost we can try to rectify some of the 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 unbalanced nature uh, that tennis builds in the body it creates a very unbalanced body, which is more prone to injury. So I guess what I'm arguing is that if we can develop more symmetry in strokes and in footwork, not only do we get, we get better movers, more efficient moving patterns, but we also get better power and spin production. And maybe the, the elusive uh, strokes with, with less injury. You know, it's hard to get a world-class technique with, with, higher, uh, uh, with better safety, you know, better safety protocol and a lower risk of injury. You know, so that's what I'm kind of after. And I think we could see that maybe in 50, 50 years. What's, what's 50 years going to be? It's tough to make these predictions. 50 years would be, I don't know, 50 years would be, let's see, like, you know, let's say 2070, 2075. Very, it's possible that you see very few one-handers anymore, maybe occasional spattering of, of one-handers, and you see a lot of two-handers, but primarily open stance, semi-open stance, two-handers, and double hands off both sides, so beautiful symmetry. Uh, double handers could be two backhands, or it could be two uh, a two-handed forehand and a, a two-handed backhand. If you have any questions about what that looks like, I can show you the variations. I'm really into the double-handed forehands on both sides, the symmetry of it, and more importantly, I really believe that we could get symmetry going with two forehands, two one-handed, single-handed forehands that are basically the mirror image. And there's a guy on the on the challenger circuit. I can post his video later for you guys to take a look at if anyone's interested. But there's a guy on the challenger circuit that plays just like that right now. He's completely symmetrical. And that's what I'm after. A beautifully symmetrical game, balance for the body, uh, less injury prone, more power and spin off both sides. So imagine the player could play heavy on both sides because they're able to create this massive RPM with the semi-Western load and explode forehand on both sides. And so it'd be quite revolutionary to see the game go this way, but why not? I don't see why, why we couldn't do that. We just need to train a little bit more ambidexterity and sort of enhance the ambidexterity of, ambidexterity of, of students that we have. And when the kids are little, 
we maybe need to develop that ambidexterity uh, to a higher, you know, higher extent, you know, than than we we currently do. A lot of times we just accept that players are going to play asymmetrically, that players are going to have a dominant side, and I'm I, w- I would like to see the dominance uh, become more, be more of an equilibrium in the dominance, and to see more of a mirror image uh, on both sides, and and we would have to train that as coaches, as technical coaches, we would have to think about that and train that symmetry and develop that symmetry. And there may be some physical exercises we can do, even even mind-body exercises that we can do with players when they're young to develop their uh, that that co-equal laterality, that the, the dominance on both sides, you know, co-dominance, as you might call it. All right. Let's see who is uh, waving and signing in. My good buddy Jim Kane is watching. Jim, really, su- really appreciate your support of the program. Thank you for tuning in every Sunday night and enjoying the show. Let me know if you have any questions. I know some of you just like to listen in and sort of uh, hear me rap. And some of you like to ask questions and get involved in the discussion. So either way is fine if you just like to listen and uh, to the discussion about technique and junior development and things like that i'm happy to oblige and if you have a specific question a question about juniors a question about adults we take questions about anything under the tennis sun just let me know and i'll be happy to answer specifically but i would like to talk a little more about symmetry i'm really uh in some ways obsessed with this topic and i the way that i see the game technically developing i i'm seeing it in an asymmetrical way currently, especially with the footwork patterns. I can't believe that so many players take a close stance off the backhand. I'm shocked that in the modern game, with the speed of the game and the premium on movement, that we see so many players still stepping in with the dominant foot. It just doesn't look right to my eye. And I think I'm in the minority because nobody else talks about it. Nobody, Not many coaches are talking about uh, creating mirrors and creating symmetry in the movement and in especially in stroke mechanics. I mean, that that is, I guess, it makes me seem like a complete uh, nut or a nut job when I talk about that. But I don't think it's that nutty. I don't think it, we're that far from that. You know, I think we could teach that. We could teach two forehands. We could teach two backhands or double hands off both sides. And we could teach the the accompanying footwork patterns to create beautiful symmetry on the court. And I think we could look back in 50 or 100 years, look back on on the technique of today and, and, and sort of sort of laugh and be like, I can't believe players stepped in that much. They, they look so asymmetrical. You know, I remember not long ago that players would slide with their with their left foot into a forehand, like a lateral forehand. I have old videos, clips of Boris Becker doing just that. Like on red clay, he would be sliding into the ball with his left foot in a closed stance for a forehand back in the 80s. And we forget how quickly the games change. Nowadays, you never see that from a high-level player. You never see a high-level player slide into a ball with the front foot coming across except on the back end. And I just think it's very inefficient and that that type of movement pattern on the back end should it should evolve away. It should fade away at some point. I, I just can't believe it hasn't happened sooner, but maybe it's coming. 
Maybe it's coming, guys. Symmetry and mirroring. I think that's the future of the game in terms of footwork and stroke technique. Let's see. Luis Adesso is waving. Jinma Padron is waving. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Appreciate it, guys. Rosalie Cruz is watching. Thank you for waving, guys. Let me know if you have any questions about tennis technique or junior development or anything under the tennis sun. I'd be happy to answer. We've been talking about the two-handed backhand and some of the technique and some of the future technique and my thoughts on symmetry of the game. Let's shift topics to Spanish tennis. So I would mention that that's something that's on my mind, the Spanish training. Spanish training involves uh, high repetitions historically and long grinding sets, long sets and long drills of attrition. You know, the idea is to sort of wear down a player, grind the player down and make them strong, both physically and mentally. So I just like to talk for a few minutes about that. Uh, the Spanish way. I don't believe the Spanish way is dead. So you hear some commentators now in the industry and they're saying that the Spanish way of training, the Spanish style is is a fad. It's gone now and it, it will, won't come back. It's outdated. It's it's a relic. And especially lately you hear people saying that that the way they train in Spain is not the best way to develop a clay court player. And I think that's really a bunch of shuck and jive. You know, that's a bunch of BS that it's crazy that, that when you see the success that the Spanish methods have had uh, in building amazing clay court players, that, that, that someone would, would go and, and say that, that those methods are not going to work any longer, I think it is really way off base and misguided. You know, misleading or misguided, I, I don't know, one or the other. But I think it's so important to develop your stamina. And we forget that a lot of the exercises and drills that we do on the tennis court are, are to develop the physical prowess of a player. And when you do long exercises, you develop a good cardio base. You train with a very high uh, heart rate. You learn to train with a high heart rate level. And your body also develops endurance, not just cardiovascular endurance, but also muscular endurance. So I think people that are advocating short repetition training are forgetting some of the, the, the just the basic physical, the importance of, physic, of the physical drilling, the long drilling, because it makes you strong. And it makes you strong by developing not only your lungs, but also your arms and your legs so that you can repeat good technique over and over again. The other thing that long repetitions do is they, they develop good muscle memory. And so for someone like me, who's a hardware coach working with kids in the trenches uh, at young ages, you know, it's so important to, to get a lot of repetitions in so that the player is myelinating their, their stroke, you know, developing good myelination, developing good muscle memory, whatever you want to call it, you know, they're developing the wiring uh, from the nervous system to the, the, the muscular system and the, the physical body. That, that wiring is so critical. And the only way to get that, to become a machine technically, to become automatic, it takes a lot of reps. You know, there's just no shortcut around it. The only shortcut is if you're super talented. 
And some players who are really, really talented, they don't have to do as many reps as, as others. That's why I say the, the idea of long repetitions and Spanish-style training and, you know, basically a lot of quantity, the load, high-load quantity of training is so super important for players who are less gifted motorically. And that's where the recommendations for short repetition training are, are, are really way off because the players who are less gifted, who need a lot of um, motoric reinforcement, they will not become machines that way. They will not become solid. They will not become consistent enough with their mechanics. So from a hardware point of view, it's just so critical to get a lot of reps in. You know, some, some people say that reps build champions, but at a developmental level, it's so true. Good reps. Good repetitions build world-class technique. You have to reach a certain threshold of repetitions. So if you don't reach that threshold of repetition, you can't develop world-class strokes. That's why it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to, to train in short repetition cycles, short repetition sets when players haven't developed their, their technical base yet. And also when players haven't developed their cardio and muscular endurance base if that makes sense, if you guys are following me there. You know, it's very, very important to get the, the player strong, to build endurance, and also to develop that technical proficiency. And then once the technical base is there, once the, the stamina is there, the physical capacity is there, yeah, it's it makes sense to incorporate more strike first training, you know, big serve, big return training, attacking early, first strike patterns. It, it makes more sense to, to, to train in short bursts in sh with short reps. But I think you should be very cautious training that way with that model before, before the players have that base that I mentioned, the great base, as some coaches talk about. You know, that comes from repetition. You know, it's like saying hitting against the wall is really bad, really bad for you. Like, that's what you're kind of hearing. Like, what is hitting against the wall do? What is good about hitting against the wall? I think it's a fantastic way to work out. Why is hitting against the wall? You hear a lot of top coaches say that the wall is one of the greatest way to, ways to practice. But now you're hearing another version of uh, from the other side of coaching that's saying, no, that, that's stupid to train against the wall. That's just mindless repetition. You got to train with more, more short, short reps, short patterns, you know, short tactical patterns. But you really need both, guys. You need both. You need both. You have to get the base, and then you can work on the patterns. But even as a, as an older player, let's say you have an advanced player who is who's got a good base, and you start working on short reps with them, short short patterns, short tactical patterns. That's good, but you, you probably shouldn't do that exclusive to everything else. You should probably leave some, uh, some part of the practice during the week, during each session, to the longer grinding training as well. You should, you should mix in both, you know. And, and that's sort of the art of coaching, knowing how much to do short repetition work and how much to do long repetition work. How much Spanish work do you do, classic Spanish work do you do, and how much short uh, tactical pattern work do you do. 
Another thing, another thing along the same topic is when you train long drills like Spanish drills, you develop this tremendous concentration. It trains your mind as well as your body, as well as your technique. So we talked about getting good muscle memory. We talked about, you know, myelinating. We talked about the physical benefits of long Spanish drilling, but also the mental benefits are really important. The mental benefit, the benefit of doing long, tough drills where you suffer can't be, can't be overestimated. You know, it's so important, especially for younger players. So you have that mental quality that's important to develop as well. And that's what Spanish drilling does. It really helps develop tough players who are willing to be, uh, to, who, who learn discipline and who learn how to suffer. And I think those are really important qualities to train. The problem is that when you start doing higher, more cerebral, more tactical work in short-term patterns, you don't get that type of grinding on a player. The player doesn't suffer. The player doesn't have to learn discipline. The player doesn't have to learn patience. The player doesn't have to learn concentration. And so in the end, the patterns are good. It's good for players to learn those short rep patterns, but it's actually a, a, a short attention span way of training because by definition, you're training the, just the beginning of a point, the first four shots or the first four patterns, the serve return and serve plus one, return plus one. You, you don't develop the concentration. You don't develop the attention span. So I think all of those things have to be in place before you start doing a bulk, uh, the bulk load of your training regimen with short-term patterns, short rep patterns. You have to be very careful that you don't sacrifice some of those other qualities that I mentioned. I hope that makes sense. If you guys have any questions about that, let me know. But this is my argument. I think it's a very sound argument. And it's based on, you know, years of coaching in the trenches. And it's also based on, on all of the studying that I've done in Spain over the last decade or more. And what they do in Spain, you know, how they develop top players in Spain. I don't think it's a false logical leap that, that what they, you know, they, they, they change their method in Spain. They have a very unique way of training players in Spain. And that's, that, you know, that's, that's contributed to their success on the pro tour. Uh, for Spanish players. I don't think that's a false uh, logical connection there, a false leap. All right, Bo Berglund is signing on. What's up, Bo? How are you? Bo says he's letting me know that I introduced the concept word of the flip to some. Uh, very good, Bo. I know we were talking about that last week. We were talking about the flip. Uh, Bo, tonight, you, you missed it. You came in a little late, but we were talking about how you want to flip the racket on the backhand on the non-dominant side. So the the racket work should take place on the left side of the body. Uh, don't let the racket flip and come around the body crossing the midline. Very important to keep, uh, to try to get that ATP super compact type one style backswing on the non-dominant side of the body, the left side of the body, and let the wrist flip on the left side of the body. That's sort of one of the secrets to getting that compact swing with acceleration. Bo says, he talked about the flip with some of his students. Ah, you were working on the backswing. He was working on the backswing with some of his students, and it helped a lot. Thanks. You're welcome, Bo. I'm glad it helped your students. And that's one of the great things about having a show like this and having an influence over other coaches and other parents and, and, and players. 
Now the type three is a, a, a loop. Oh no. Gordon says the type three is a, is the compact one. Gordon, is that true? Because I, I just want to call it the type one. I think it's better. The type one should be the compact one. Because it's number one. It's the one we're shooting for. You're saying it's the type three? I want to call it the type one. Can I just call it the type one and can I just make it up myself? I don't care what Brian and, and Rick say. So Gordon, can you confirm that the type three backhand, according to the research of Brian Gordon, is the, the compact one, the most compact one? Man, I always get those mixed up, but I want to call it type one. It's the number one, man. Number one. All right. I, that's a bummer, but I think it should be called the type one. I, I, I want to call it the type one. Gordon, I, I want to call it the type one because it, it, it makes more sense to me just rationally, but... Whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's the compact one, guys, right? All right, Hugo Ball Green is tuning. What's up, Hugo? Hugo is my assistant coach and apprentice, and this guy is lighting it up as a tennis coach. Going to show me a lot of promise here, show me a lot of ability, potentially going to be a great coach down the road. I could see this guy taking off in the industry. Good job, man. Keep it up. Adrian Murua is watching. What's up, Adrian? Thanks for waving. Appreciate it. Gordon, let me know if you have any questions. I know we were talking offline about some stuff, or off offline from this show at least, about uh, some, some questions about... Ooh, absorbing. You were talking to me about absorbing. Oh, I had another question too. I get a lot of questions in my email box. We had another question. We had a question about absorbing. Like, what is absorbing? It's sort of a Spanish term. Jose Higueras talks about it a lot. We could talk about that if you'd like. And I had another question in my inbox. Guys, by the way, if you have any questions about tennis, technique, junior development, you can send them to me and I answer them for free in my inbox. Chris at ChrisLewitt.com. Chris at ChrisLewitt.com, C-H-R-I-S-L-E-W-I-T.com. You can send me questions. I help a lot of folks via email. I help a lot of folks via WhatsApp. We have more and more players joining our online school right now. So we're, we're growing a big community of learners online. I'm very excited about that. That's my new digital product uh, project online. It is called CLTA.teachable.com clta.teachable.com. You can check out some of our new courses there. And it's very exciting for me to work with people from around the world who are not really from the, the northeast, uh, northeastern United States here, you know, that are maybe from another country, from overseas. And I do a lot of uh, coaching and, and helping people via WhatsApp and via email and sometimes via, via phone, but we do a lot of video back and forth, you know, video, and I, I do a lot of video analysis and things like that and recommendations. So anyway, uh, my point is I, I'm getting a lot of questions via email each week, and this is a good forum to answer some of those questions. So another question that I had was on the grip, you know, the, sometimes it's called the uni grip. The grip I was suggesting for the one-handed players who are left out there on tour, I don't know how many are, there are, or high-level one-handers is, is, you know, can you use that grip for the volley? So we had a question about absorbing, and we had a question about can you use the, the new continental, the, the semi-western forehand, which also flips over into a semi-western backhand, can you use that at the net? And I think it's a really cool question. 
I don't know the answer exactly. I know it's done in soft tennis. In soft tennis in Japan, they do that. Let me show you what that looks like really quick. So it's going to look something like this, guys. So you're going to have your forehand, your, your, your semi-western forehand grip. And if you're at the net, okay, it kind of looks weird like that, like the way Pato Alvarez used to do it. Pato Alvarez, he still volleys like that when he's coaching. So he's got kind of a... I don't know if you can see that well. It's an Eastern, or a little farther than Eastern, uh, backhand, and he's going like this. It looks kind of weird. You know? So you could volley that way, and then you could turn it around and volley this way. Guys, I know I, know I look like a hacker at the club. I'm sorry, but sometimes you learn the best technical uh, trends. You, you, learn the, you get the best technical insight from just the average club player. So it kind of looks like that. You know, because club players never take any lessons and they're always experimenting with new stuff. So you see a lot of innovative stuff from club players. It'd be kind of like that. <laughs> Can you see that? That, and then you just flip it over to that. And it should work because it's, it's, basically, it's basically just like a traditional continental. It's a new continental. So I had a, a good question about that uh, in, in my email box this week. Can, can you do it? I'd like, I've never done it. I'm just saying... You could totally do that, and they do it in soft tennis in Japan, which is a, a variant sport of tennis. Now, so, you know, kind of like you'd be waiting like that, and you'd go, bam, and you go, bam. And I'll tell you, it's really strong. It's a very strong grip. I mean, I feel pretty strong with it. You, you're not going to get much slice. It's going to be tough on the low ones. That could be an issue. <laughs> the, low, the low volley could be an issue. I think you... You could figure it out. I think you could do it. I'm going to have to go practice this. But, you know, I'm thinking it could be, you know, a way to, to take this one grip and make it more universal, both from the baseline and at the net. I'll be posting some new videos this week of my own game because I, I use this grip, this universal grip for my strokes. And I'll be posting a few more videos this week, like on some Facebook and social media. You guys can check it out. Maybe I'll put it on the YouTube channel. If you go to our YouTube channel, it's uh, youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. We have a lot of free content there, a lot of free videos and lessons. And we do my reality show there. My teaching reality show is, is all, all of the archives are there. If you want to see me working on the court live with my students, you can go there and check it out. It's youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. So, yeah, so this is my ground stroke grip, you know, the universal you hit with both sides, you hit with the same side of the, of the strings, and then that could, that could totally be a volley grip, guys. Come on. Totally. The low ones, low ones could be tough. You have, to, you have to maneuver your wrist a little bit for the low ones. But the cool thing about that is when you're at the net, you could easily transition to a swing volley. So you could take a top spin, or a topspin forehand, you could get a topspin swinging volley very easily, kind of built into the grip. And that's what, that's another sort of future trend that I'm anticipating. You'll see more, more swinging volleys at the net with topspin, kind of interesting. Uh, the question about absorbing, let's talk about absorbing a little bit. What the hell is absorbing? You know, I don't think sometimes, you hear a lot of coaches talking about absorbing and, and they all, they give different definitions of what absorbing is. I don't even think a lot of the USTA coaches know what absorbing is. It's kind of funny because Jose uses the word a lot. And sometimes Jose doesn't choose the best words to use to describe certain coaching 
phenomenons or coaching points. And so absorbing, you know, for me, absorbing is basically moving back to neutralize a big shot. It's moving your body away from the baseline, away from a fast incoming ball, and putting yourself in a position, a better position to make a neutralizing shot. To me, that's absorbing. You're, you're, and what it kind of looks like you're absorbing the pace of the shot by backing up. And I think that's why Jose calls it that. I haven't actually heard that term in Spain. So it's a term that Jose uses a lot, and he must have picked it up in Spain, but I just personally haven't studied with any coaches at any of the major academies who use that word. But that doesn't mean it's not from Spain. I think it probably is. The origin is probably from Spain, and Jose picked it up, and he brought it to the U.S., and he has all the you know, the national coaches. When he was the head of... of coaching at the USCA, he would have all of the national coaches use his lingo. You know, they would, they would, they, they talked about absorbing, they talked about walking to the ball, which is another terminology that I don't, that I don't like very much. They, they did all of Jose's drills, which, which a lot of them had a Spanish derivation. So what you saw when you, when you went to a USDA national training center, or you saw the top American kids practicing under Jose's watchful eye, all of the national coaches were trained by Jose and they respected Jose a lot and they would do the exercises that he wanted. And a lot of them were Spanish drills with a Spanish philosophy and a Spanish lingo, Spanish terminology. And so absorbing became a very popular sort of catchphrase. You you hear it a lot. You hear a lot of the national coaches sort of bantering it, throwing it back and forth. And I don't think a lot of the national coaches really understood it either because it it can be used in different contexts. But essentially, it's a movement backwards. It can be one step. It could be two quick steps. Typically, it's one step off a fast incoming ball. And you step back, you absorb the pace, and you hit sort of a neutralizing shot that that keeps you in the point, maybe a high topspin shot. You know, it's, it's a little confusing for me because in Spain... At the Sanchez Academy, under the Sanchez-Casal system, they talk about hitting an aggressive defense, which which means, you know, you, you try to hit an aggressive topspin when you're being pushed back. And the idea of absorbing, it sort of implies that you're not accelerating, which I think is is probably a mistake, you know, when because a lot of times when coaches talk about absorbing, they say, well, we're going to sort of take energy off of the ball we're going to play a neutral shot by by absorbing the speed of the incoming shot and i think that doesn't quite jive with what i've learned in spain where when you're in trouble you want to play heavy and you want to really accelerate so maybe it's not the best term it it makes sense in terms of the movement backwards because it does look like you're absorbing a big ball but I think you have to remind players that they're not trying to reduce their racket speed. They're still trying to accelerate and play an aggressive defense when they're absorbing, if that makes sense. you know, I'm sure there are situations where on a very fast ball, you're just trying to get it back. But, but typically in Spain, the way I've been taught or the way I've, where I've studied in Spain, the academies where I've studied, the goal is when you're pushed back and you're in trouble, someone hits a big shot, 
you want to neutralize with racket speed and play a lot of topspin, high topspin, and try to get yourself out of trouble with an aggressive defense. So I don't know if you guys have a differing view on that. If any of you guys have been to Spain or, or studied with some Spanish coaches, you could let me know. I see my buddy Michael is on the program, Michael Lagarzo, and he has uh, really good knowledge, and maybe he has an opinion on that. Michael, let me know if you have an opinion. Thanks for waving, buddy. Appreciate you tuning in and supporting the show. Had a very good show tonight, covering a lot of interesting topics. I, I enjoy, I'm enjoying this um, this show tonight in terms of the technical discussion, and also I just I love talking about Spanish concepts. So, you know, we talked about Spanish drilling, we talked about uh, the two-handed backhand technique earlier, and we're we're sort of mulling over this concept of absorption. So I think it's important that when you teach players to absorb, a couple things. When players are absorbing, you can tell them that they can still take the ball on the rise. They're still usually taking the ball on the rise if it's coming in fast. They're just letting the ball rise up to a more comfortable height where they can play a better, more effective shot. You know, it's harder to absorb well and hit a good defense if the ball's at your shoelaces. So the idea is to step back, move back off the baseline, either one steps or two quick steps one step or two quick steps and let the ball rise up more above your knee, more above your waist where you can play a much better aggressive defense. I mean, that's how I would describe it and characterize that, that shot, that, that term, uh, absorbing shot or absorption. The other thing is that you don't want to meet the ball. Jose talks about talks a lot about how you don't want to meet the ball too early when you're absorbing. So when you're moving backwards, you want to let the ball come well into your strike zone so you can generate maximum racket head speed and and a good defensive shot. If you try to reach out too much, so if you're moving backwards and you try to you try to reach out too too early to the ball, you're actually going to lose racket speed and pace. So that's another important concept, Gordon. If you're thinking about, you know, I know Gordon had this question about absorption. And if, you're, if you meet the ball too early as you're moving backwards, you can actually you lose in the ideal contact point and you can lose spin and, and pace and things like that. So it's important to let the ball to come inside, to come in, into the, the in a little more than normal because you're, after all, you're flinging your body backwards, so the ball has to be a little closer to you as you're moving backwards to get the right distance from your body. So I think that's also an important concept when, it, when we're talking about absorption and absorbing the ball. Yeah, uh, Gordon added uh, a comment, and Gordon, Gordon Paul says, thank you for the comment, Gordon. He says, Jose was talking about hitting and falling back. So oftentimes, that's another thing. How do you do the footwork? This is, this is a, a, another big debate that coaches have about the footwork that you should use when you're absorbing. And I know the USDA national coaches had a, a lot of debate about what footwork they should teach when they're absorbing. So, for example, should you use a crossover step or a side shuffle going back on diagonal? So usually you try to get, you know, in the USDA, they sort of, they sort of, in their teaching philosophy, they settled on a crossover. So the first step will be a quick crossover, and then you load on the back leg, 
And that's, that's, this is another important debate. Like, should you do a reverse pivot at that point or should you stay sideways and lift your front foot up as you're falling backwards? So there's two ways to do it. And I don't, I don't know if I can show it to you here in my kitchen, but Gordon, I'll have to show it to you next time you, you come for a visit or maybe we can do a short video on it. But essentially you can spin your, as you're moving backward to absorb, you can spin your hips around. You can spin your hips around and reverse pivot, or you can jump backwards onto your right leg with your left foot kicking out forward. I don't think I can show you here, guys, but but essentially there's two ways to uh, to to move backward with your footwork. You know, there's two ways to do it. So there's so there's a number of sort of gray areas here. Sort of, I want to say. It's a little cloudy on exactly how you do it, and and I've studied with Jose personally a, a lot. You know, I, I've I've been to I I've been fo I follow him around everywhere. <laughs> I love Jose's teaching, uh, but sometimes there's not enough clarity with his his word choices. You know, sometimes his word choices are are, are not perfect. He, his English is not perfect. You know, it's, it's pretty good, but it's not it's not great. And, and so sometimes he's a little hard to follow if you don't, if you haven't studied with Jose a lot and you don't know sort of his, his, his the diction that he uses and, and, and sort of the terminology that he uses. A lot of the terminology that Jose uses is from Spain. So I, I understand him very, very well. But I know that many coaches who have tried to learn from Jose have been a little frustrated and confused when he's talking to them because he uses a lingo that's very common in Spain, and he has a bit of an accent, and his, his English is okay, but it's, it's not great. So some coaches have trouble following him, but I follow, I follow him very clearly. And to me, I, I love learning from him. Be, I, I love learning from him because he's taken many of the classical principles from Spain, and he's sort of upgraded them, and he's created a hybrid approach that works on fast courts, and he teaches a very all-around modern game. Uh, so he's not stuck in the past. He's very much on the cutting edge moving forward as a Spanish coach. And I think that's so cool. And that's basically what I'm about, too. I'm about moving to the next level of Spanish training, the next gen. I call it next gen Spanish training. And Jose Higueras is definitely one of the next gen Spanish trainers. You know, he's teaching a Spanish method, whatever you want to call it. He's teaching a Spanish method that's very next generation. It's very modern and progressive rather than old school. And I think that's very cool. So guys, I don't know if that, if that helped about absorption. I think I tried to make it clear for you what, what it means. There is some disagreement about how to teach the footwork on absorption. I think we should all agree that we should emphasize racket speed when absorbing. And not racket speed, speed to hit the ball hard, but racket speed to generate spin. Remember, it's important to adjust your contact point when you're absorbing because your body's falling backwards. So you have to make the contact point a little closer than normal because your body's falling away. The other part of absorbing that you have to remember, just as a recap, uh, let's see, we have the, the positioning, the footwork, the racket speed. Yeah, the, 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 the one last thing that we mentioned was the on the rise. You want to, uh, typically when you're absorbing, you take the ball on the rise. The ball's still actually coming up. And that is the primary goal of absorbing. The reason why you're moving backwards is not just to move backwards, but it's to move backwards to put your body in a better position to receive the ball. 
you're moving backward quickly to put your body in a place where you can absorb that power and, and receive the ball at a higher point and send it better on a, uh, as a defensive shot. So that, that's sort of the whole, that's what it's all about. I hope that makes sense and it clarifies what absorption means uh, to, uh, for you guys. And I know it's kind of a tricky concept. It could be, could be explained more clearly. I honestly think a lot of, even the guys at, Nash, at the national level, at the USCA, they don't really, a lot of them sometimes throw around the terms that Jose uses and they don't actually know exactly what they mean. But they have to sort of use those terms because, you know, it's Jose and he's a legend and, you know, he was the boss for many years. Now he's not the boss anymore. He's, he's just a consultant again. But when he was the boss, you know, you can't disagree with the boss and you have to use all the boss's terms and you have to use the boss's drills and, and system and methods even if you don't quite understand or you don't, even if you don't agree, you know, or you're going to get fired. And let me tell you, none of those USDA coaches want to get fired. That's a, it's a very good job, kind of a cushy position with a lot of perks. They don't want to lose that position. And so, you know, I guess there's a little debate there. We should talk about it more. It's kind of interesting. When I go to study with Jose this year, I, I can ask him for a little clarification. I've seen him work on it in many different ways. I've seen him work on it with dead ball drills, hand feeding. I've seen him work on it with live ball drills, with all different levels of players. I've seen him work on it with juniors and with professional players. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'd, I'd like to pick his brain a little more and see, you know, exactly you know how I, I could ask some of these clarification questions uh, of him I would say that that you know for me absorption is is a defensive movement if you can teach you, you just the bottom line is you got to teach players how to move in reverse you know I think that's what Jose is, is getting at if players can't just you know if the ball's coming at you fast or or hard and or heavy you can't just always hold the line and fight the ball. You have to absorb the ball, move back away from the ball to achieve a better position so you can hit a better shot. And to me, I guess that's the bottom line with absorption is that players need to know how to move backward and not just forward or holding the ground. You know, there's that reverse movement and, and that's sort of typified by absorption. All right, we've got some new questions on the board here. I see we have some new friends on the program and some new waves. Guys, I really appreciate you supporting my Sunday night show. I know it's a late night program. I do also know that many of you are watching the replays of the program. We have a lot of views on YouTube. I have gotten specific feedback from folks who don't like Facebook for whatever reason, and they watch the show replay that's archived on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. So you're welcome to go there to YouTube and watch the show there. If for some reason you're not a Facebook person, it's fine with me. And a lot of people tune in later to the replays and I like to check the comments. I try to check the comments every week and answer as many posts, uh, as many comments as I can or questions uh, from the post. Uh, on Facebook itself. So there's different ways that you can watch the show. You can watch it live. You can watch it on a replay on Facebook, or you can watch it in our archives at our YouTube channel. Jim Kane says, David Bailey shows you those footwork moves, I believe. I have his program. I may have to revisit. 
Yeah, David Bailey doesn't use the term absorption. I believe he does teach a backward hop. And I think that's kind of what Jose is getting at. I don't like the way David Bailey teaches that particular move, that contact move, because he teaches the, the leg up. It, it looks kind of artificial to me. I'm not a big fan of that. That's one part of the David Bailey program that I actually don't like that much. And I think David Bailey is, is really amazing. I recommend his program all the time. And he... he, he created this footwork system called the, Dale, uh, the David Bailey footwork method or the Bailey method. And it's really quite wonderful. But one thing I don't like about it is, there's, there's a few things that I disagree with in the system, but one of the things I don't like is that he teaches the players to lift up that front leg a lot and it sort of lose their balance falling backwards. And I think it's a little extreme the way he demonstrates it and teaches it. I, I'm not a huge fan of that, the, the specific way that he, he teaches it. So... Anyway, you know, that's my take on it. Uh, but, yeah, he, he is teaching a reverse move. And that, that, the bottom line is players need to know how to move back well, and that is absorption. That's typically absorption. Let's see. Leanne, Leanne Velasco is watching. Thank you for waving, Leanne. I really appreciate it. Matthew Tanulanand uh, Tan is watching. Thank you, Matthew. I believe you've tuned in before, and I really appreciate the regular viewers of this program. I appreciate you guys. We're like a big family on Sunday nights, and we try to talk tennis, go after some of the big topics in the tennis industry, and especially debate technique. We love technique on this program. Alejandro Mauricio Fuentes is watching. Thank you for waving, Alejandro. I believe you're also a regular. I appreciate all the support of the Sunday night program. Jim Kane says, yes, the knee goes high and reverse pivot. Right, I'm not a huge fan of that. David Bailey teaching the really high knee. He teaches it kind of like a robot. It's just very artificial. The knee doesn't have to be that high, and I, I would never teach the knee that high to kids. If you, if, you have to, you know, if you have to jump backwards, you should try to keep the foot a little lower to the ground, in my opinion, for stability and for control of the body. I don't think you need to bring that knee up quite that high. Although I know David has studied some pro footwork where players may do that, but I would never teach that to a kid. So, you know, that's, that's my take on that. All right, guys, it's getting a little late now. It may be getting close to nighty-night time. I'm feeling a little sleepy. I very much enjoyed this program. I think I would like to tackle, I, I think I have one last topic, energy for one last topic. If you have any last minute questions for me, I, I, have, I have the energy. I'm going to dig deep into my reserve because I am Spanish trained. I have the stamina. I have the discipline and I'm not afraid to suffer. I have not trained a lot of short attention span uh, drills and repetitions. I have trained long reps, and I'm ready to battle. I'm ready to suffer all night if need be. So if you have any extra questions, let me know. I thought I might touch on the drop shot, or we could save that discussion for another night. Drop shot was uh, another big one, big topic for me. Guys, let, let, let's get into it really quick, because I'm a fighter. Drop shot, more important to teach than the volley. This is what I'm going to say to you. 
The drop shot in many ways is more important and more valuable a shot than the volley, in my opinion. And I wonder if you agree or disagree. The volley, in my opinion, is completely overtaught to a lot of kids. The volley is an obsession for a lot of coaches. And I know that some of you are going to comment and say, well, a lot of coaches don't teach the volley at all. They're te teaching like junior moon ballers. And there is a group of coaches who, are, who do that as well. But I know many, many coaches, and I believe the majority of coaches are obsessed with the volley and the all-court game. I, too, am obsessed with the all-court game. But part of the all-court game is, you know, having a good drop shot. I have talked about this in the past. To me, the drop shot and the volley are like cousins. They're like brother and sister. They should be taught in tandem. They should be taught in concert. They're actually very similar biomechanical movements, believe it or not. And they are opposite tactics. So, for example, you use a, a drop shot to bring someone to the net. And obviously, you try to go to the net to volley. So, they are, they are tactics that, that, are, that you know, they mirror each other in a sense, or they're opposites of each other. And technically, they're very similar shots, so I think they should be taught in, a, in, in tandem, together, in a sense. You know, if you're, my point is, if you're going to work on the volley, <clears throat> let's say you're going to spend you know, 20 minutes on the volley in a lesson, you should spend 20 minutes on the drop shot. They're, they're, they're at least as important as each other, and I would argue that the drop shot may be even more important, because one of the main reasons is the drop shot is a the best tool for psychological warfare in the game, aside from cheating, and cheating is illegal. So the drop shot is the best legal tool of psychological warfare because it drives people completely nuts, drives people bananas. I think it's more powerful as a psychological weapon than the volley. And for that reason alone, I think we should be teaching more drop shots to kids, you know, and to adults, to anyone, to everyone, because it's such an incredible weapon. And it does a lot of psychological damage. It really, it really gets at your opponent. It, it makes your rival, drives your rival bananas if you can hit a good drop shot, especially if you follow it up with a good lob. So I say the drop shot is the, the most powerful tool for psychological warfare, except for cheating. And cheating's illegal. We don't want to teach our players to cheat, right? So the best, the best we got is a drop shot. And I know many coaches never teach the drop shot. One thing I love about Tony Nadal, the great Tony Nadal from Spain, and I've studied with Tony, and I'm studying his online course right now, a very comprehensive, on, I'm doing his online training. It's unbelievably great. It's fantastic. I'm enjoying it so much. He's got a lot of exercises that incorporate the drop shot. And I've heard many coaches say that you, sh you don't have to teach the drop shot. You know, it's just a natural shot that players develop. But Tony actually teaches it. He's got a number of great exercises for that, like power shots followed by drop shots, uh, developing the feel at the net. Uh, so I'm a big believer in that. And I'm, I think we should be teaching the drop shot at least as much as the volley. You, you can't be teaching the volley 
every day and not also teach the drop shot to at least, you know, at least the same amount of time. Spend as much time on the drop shot as the volley. If you only have 20 minutes, spend 10 minutes on the volley, 10 minutes on the drop shot. Don't just overweight the volley, you know. I mean, I know some coaches are not teaching the volley at all, but I know a lot of coaches who are. And what I'm saying is the drop shot is so powerful. Another quote from the Lewidology is, the drop shot is the most powerful shot in tennis that's not powerful. You know, it's one of my quotes. And it's so true. For example, many players don't volley that well. You know, they don't, they, they don't have great hands at the net for whatever reason. Maybe they're from that group of coaches who don't teach the net very much. Maybe they, they never play doubles. You know, some kids never play doubles. They never develop good volleys. And I'm not saying you shouldn't develop good volleys. It's great to have a complete game. Great to have good volleys. But, man, if, if you don't have a drop shot, you can never exploit a player's bad volley. Because you, you have to bring that player to net. And the best way to do that is with a short shot, a drop shot. The other thing is, if you accept the premise that the overhead is the worst shot in junior tennis, and I, and I know, you know Andy Brandy talks about that. A lot of coaches talk about the overhead, how it's, it's such a problem in junior tennis. Kids don't practice the overhead and kids miss the overhead. How do you exploit that? The tactical pattern to use is drop shot and then lob. You got to bring the player to net and then throw up a lob. But you have to be willing to practice your drop shot in order to affect that pattern to exploit someone's poor overhead. So there's a lot of important reasons to have a drop shot tactically. I mentioned the psychological benefits, a tool for psychological warfare, and so on and so forth. So you have uh, a very important shot there that is, in my opinion, in my experience, very under-practiced, underrated and under-practiced. And I just wanted to throw it out there to all you coaches and parents and players and say, hey, use the drop shot more. Encourage your players to practice that shot. We have a lot of really cool drills that we use in my lessons and in my academy and in my camps where we, we have games that incorporate the drop shot. We have drills a la Tony Nadal that incorporate the drop shot, you know, dead ball drills. You have live ball exercises with the drop shot. You can play mini tennis and develop feel with the continental grip. You know, that's part of the drop shot and the volley too. You know, so there's a lot of things you can do to develop the uh, good drop shot attack. And I think it's just really important, and it's a totally neglected shot in tennis, especially in the U.S. here. I'll tell you one thing that's a real issue with the drop shot is parents start freaking out. You know, parents start freaking out when you try to encourage their player to hit a drop shot because they want the big power game. They want the players to play aggressive, quote-unquote, and they don't see the drop shot as a legit shot. They, they see it as a bunch of shuck and jive or some you know, stupid shot to attempt. And then sometimes kids are kind of embarrassed. You know, they're embarrassed to try it. They don't think it's, you know, it's not like a tough guy shot. They think it's sort of like a, I don't know, kind of like Kyrgios' underarm serve or something. You know, they, they don't think it's like a legit shot. But drop shot is totally legit shot. And so the players are kind of embarrassed to try it. The parents get pissed off if the player misses it. You know, parents are freaking out on the sideline. If players miss a drop shot or, God forbid, they pop up a drop shot. You ever see a parent's face after a child tries a drop shot and pop it up and the other player comes in and just puts it away? You know, it, it's, really, it's really problematic because that reaction from a parent, it just makes it hard to convince a player to keep 
attempting that shot to keep working on their feel and working on drawing and the other player in. You know, so just wanted to throw that out there to you guys. Drop shot. It's the cousin of the volley. It should be worked on along with the volley. You know, it doesn't have to be all volley all the time. The drop shot, it can be, you can drill it. You can do it in games. I, I gotta show, I really have to film a few of the games that we do. We have these really cool games, live ball games. Like I have one called cross court and drop shot where the players, we, we play cross court and then the point doesn't start until the player executes a drop shot down the line. Sometimes I put buckets on the court and the players have to try to shoot their drop shot in the bucket for bonus points or a prize. We got a lot of cool uh, creative games that we use to develop the drop shot with our players. It doesn't have to be boring drills. I mean, it can be drills, but it can also be in a game format that's lots of fun and uh, encourages creativity. But I'm just shocked at how many times you have a player. I see so many players that come to me who are obsessed with getting to net, but they never once think to draw their opponent to net. You know, bringing your opponent in can sometimes be just as good as you going in yourself. And I like taking over the net just like anyone else, but many times if, if I have an opponent who's a weak net player or they have a bad overhead or they don't move well, I mean, you can drop shot them all day long and bring them forward and it drives them crazy. And it's one of the most effective strategies against that type of player. And one other thing is if you have a pusher, you know, we have so many junior players who don't know how to play pushers. And the drop shot is one of the best strategies against a pusher. You can bring a pusher in from the baseline where they're comfortable. You bring them up to the net where they're not as comfortable. You make them volley. You make them hit overheads. And it's, it works really well. It's a really good strategy. You know, it's a secondary shot, secondary pattern that, that's very effective against uh, the pushers that you see that are so common at the junior tournament level, especially, you know, under 12s and to some extent under 14. So for all of these reasons that I mentioned, guys, I'm just shocked that the drop shot is not taught more, it's not emphasized, it's not encouraged, it's not prioritized. And so I just like to, I wanted to end the show just mentioning that and encouraging anyone who listens to, you know, to teach that. Teach the drop shot. Encourage it. Try the drop shot. If you're a player, try it. Experiment with it. If you're a parent, back off. Let your kid experiment. Let your kid develop some creativity and feel. Don't freak out every time they try a soft shot. As they say in Spain, soft shots can be as good as hard shots. Your player doesn't have to hit every ball at top speed to win. Sometimes if you hit the ball at a slow speed, you can win. It can be just as effective as a shot at high speed. You know, not every shot has to be high speed. And parents are the guiltiest party in emphasizing to their players that they have to play always at high speed. Soft shots can be just as effective as hard shots. So parents, back off. Let your players experiment. If they make a stupid drop shot, don't make the scrunchy face and the, you know, the, the, the OMG face. Don't freak out. Don't swear. Don't get mad at them. Just say, you know, tell, hey, hey, you need to make a better decision there. Or tell your player, you know, that was a little too high. Try again the next time. You know, keep encouraging them. Don't shut them down. 
Otherwise, you're going to have a one-dimensional player who doesn't have any variety and doesn't have the skill set or the pattern set to, to defeat their rivals that, that, that are not comfortable moving forward. All right, guys, that's my drop shot theory for the night. I want to thank you guys so much for joining the show. It was a really good show. I, I enjoyed sort of, we didn't have a ton of questions, specific questions, but I enjoyed sort of discussing the topics that are near and dear to my heart and that are on my mind for the week. I will have some new ideas for you next week. I always love talking tennis, especially technique. You guys know I'm a hardware guy. I would like to encourage you to like the program, to share with your friends. We're trying to grow this community. Tell your friends if you enjoy the show. Remember, if you can't make the live show, I know our friends in Europe cannot make it because they're sleeping right now. And I know that for many of you, it's a, it's a late Sunday night. But no matter, no matter what, if you watch the show live, if you watch the show on a replay on Facebook, or if you, or if you check out the YouTube archives of the show, youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. Nevertheless, how, however you do it, tell your friends. Tell your friends it's a good show and, and tell them to tune in one way or the other in whatever method they, they prefer. We also are on podcast now. Very exciting on all the podcasting platforms. So that's iTunes. That's Google Play. That's SoundCloud. That's all, all of them. All, all the big ones. So we, we have a podcast now. So if you can't catch the show or if you want to listen to the show again, you can listen to it while you're working out, while you're driving or whatever you're doing. You know, I love podcasts so much. So I'm really excited to get the show in a podcast format for you guys. You can listen to the show then uh, via podcast. You can catch the replays, or catch the live show Sunday night. What else? Guys, go to our new online school, clta.teachable.com. Please go join. It's free to become a member of our community and to browse the collection of courses that we offer. The courses are not free, but they are amazing, amazing video courses. You can study with me from anywhere in the world. You can learn about my teaching methods through my library. We have two new libraries there that we are, that you can purchase. There are libraries of all my videos uh, from the Spanish methods that I use uh, to my technical training. You can, you can buy those, that li those libraries and they're updated every month. We're putting new videos. We have hundreds of videos collected in our libraries right now. Really cool. And you can learn all about my methods, whether it's my technical method or it's all of the methods that I brought back from Spain, from all my travels there. So go to clta.teachable.com and check it out. Check out what we're doing. We are the only, we're currently only the only Spanish, digital Spanish academy, you know, online Spanish academy. Nobody else is, is doing that yet. I expect that some people will follow, but we are currently the only Digital Spanish Academy, Virtual Spanish Academy Online, and I call it the next-gen Spanish method. So we're doing a lot uh, of progressive Spanish training, you know, not old-school Spanish training, new-school Spanish training, progressive Spanish training, updated for the modern game, and we're doing a lot of technical work on the, uh, at the school, which is not typical in Spain. In Spain, uh, historically, they haven't done as much detailed technical work. So that is part of my next-gen Spanish method is we're more technically focused than the, the typical Spanish approach. So guys, check it out, clta.teachable.com. Check out a replay if you missed the show.
or if you want to uh, uh, review topics that we discussed on the show. And I will see you guys on the next broadcast next Sunday, every Sunday, 9.45 p.m. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you guys tuning in. God bless. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find archives of all Chris's shows at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt or search Chris Lewitt on YouTube. You can watch the live video broadcast of this program weekly on Sunday nights where you can ask questions and comment in real time on Facebook Live. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the live show. Please share our programs with friends and join our online community. You can join Chris Lewitt's online tennis academy at clta.teachable.com or visit chrislewitt.com for more info. Chris's latest published articles and additional video resources can be found at prodigymaker.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.